God's people were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. But what we've seen as we've looked at the book of Exodus is that God rescued them. He provided for them in the desert and he instructed them. And in doing so, we reach this high point. Uh, We saw it last week where God establishes his covenant. God says, this is who I am and so this is how you are to live. They were in God's presence and they received God's promise. And they were on their way to this land flowing with milk and honey and there was this great sense of hope, a sense of future, a sense of expectation. But what we're confronted with in Exodus chapter 32 is despair and tragedy. Why? Well, it's the same reason that as the Bible opens, there's this this sense of future. There's this sense of hope in those first pages of the book of Genesis. But it's met with despair and tragedy. And it's the same reason that, well, it happens to us. We have this great potential. Often we have so much hope and yet, Often in our lives we're met with misery and tragedy. From Adam to Israel to you and me. Why? Well, the reason is given there in Exodus chapter 32. The reason is that we and they build idols. We see in Exodus chapter 32 that they set up a substitute for God. Something other than the one. They look to something other than the creator and the author of life to give them their meaning and joy. But what we see is whatever is set up in replacement of God is never big enough. Whatever is set up in replacement of God will always take its steals rather than gives. This God of their own hands failed to help them as all created things do. And so when you look to a creature, something that is made rather than the creator to find your highest joy, you are always let down. What we see here in Exodus chapter 2 is what the Bible calls idolatry. And idolatry is really putting something or someone in the place of God. Idolatry And idols are counterfeit gods. They're fake kind of gods. And anything you seek to give you, only what Christ can give you, that is joy, security, peace, meaning, significance, identity, salvation, anything that you replace God with becomes an idol. Now, we in our modern world don't have... Um, commonly a problem associated with shrines and temples and carved images. But one author, Osganes, says this. He says, Idolatry is the most discussed problem in the Bible. There can be no believing communities without an unswerving eye to the detection and destruction of idols. Idols are common in our world. They include money, relationships, peer approval, competence, skill, Security, comfort, brains, beauty, success, ambition. 
Israel's worship of the golden calf appears in this passage. But as we read it, we think, well, you know, I don't really struggle with worshipping a cow. I might be tempted to eat them, but not to worship them. So we see and we're reminded in Exodus chapter 32 that this isn't actually about a calf. It's about the human heart. And I think Stephen understands this when he says in Acts chapter 7, he says, in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who would go before us. In their hearts. That's where it started. And its expression was this golden calf. And I want to say this morning that our hearts are no different outside of the Lord Jesus and outside of his work to those hearts that we see in Exodus chapter 32, the hearts of those people in Exodus chapter 32. What we're going to see here this morning is three things. Firstly, we're going to see why we make idols. Secondly, we're going to see what idols do to us. What's the effect of idolatry? And thirdly, we're going to see what God does about it. So firstly, I want to ask the question, why do we make idols? Well, the first reason is there in verse 1. It's because we're impatient. Have a look there in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods that will go before us. See what is the driving issue here that really propels this act of idolatry, it's that God's people are impatient. Moses seems to be taking so long on this mountain with God and they don't want him to take long. They want God and they want him now. They want him on their own terms. They're tired of waiting. Tired of waiting. I mean, none of us like waiting. I don't know if you're like me, but if you put a meal into the microwave and it takes longer than three minutes to reheat... You don't quite know what to do. I mean, I don't want to wait longer than three minutes. We don't like waiting. And we especially don't like waiting for God. For God to be at work. For God to be made known to us. We don't want to wait for that. We want it now. So the first driver of their idolatry is their impatience. The second driver is, well, it's that they want to see God. They want to see God with their own eyes in front of them in a tangible way. You see there in verse 2, Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. What they replace the God who has rescued them with is is a tangible God, a a physical reality that, that can be seen. This is... No God that they make of their imagination here. It's a God of their creation. See, how do you worship a God you can't see? God's people for 400 years had been surrounded by the gods of the Egyptians, gods that you could see. They want a God here and now, one that they can see. Thirdly, why Do they make idols? Well, they want to do whatever they want. They want God here now. 
They want a God who they can see. And they want a God who allows them to do anything they want. Have a look there in verse 6. The next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and then got up to indulge in revelry. At the end of verse 6, that phrase, indulge in revelry, has strong sexual connotations. They want to worship their God and they want to worship their God their way. They want a God who lets them do what they want. A God who will allow them to indulge their impulses and their desires. And we're not that dissimilar. We often want a God who will let me do what I want. My, how lovely in some senses would it be to have my indulgence as my worship, a God to sanction my sin rather than get in the way of it. And we see this in our modern world. We see that people construct an idea of God, the kind of idea, the idea of God who, who will just basically sign off on everything that they want to do. A friend of ours, who we've known for a very long time, recently has left his wife and three children because God wants me to be happy. A God who will let me do what I want to do. A God who is just the big fella upstairs. A God who is my cosmic boyfriend. We make a God of our imagination so often and then we act like he's calling the shots. We want control. The golden calf wants us to eat and drink and sleep around. It's like, you know, kids with teddies, often they won't, um, you know, ask themselves for whatever they want. They get their teddy and they say, Teddy wants more chocolate. Well, this is what we often do. And this is what our world does. It constructs a picture of the kind of God that they want God to be. And then they imagine that this God is telling them to do these things. See, Israel doesn't want... It doesn't want the God who has saved them, who has rescued them, who has provided for them. They want a God of their imagination. Israel doesn't want a God who is larger than them. They want a God who will do what they want. They don't want a God who is mysteriously so beyond them. They want a God who they can see. They, want, they don't want a God who is holy and transcendent, sovereign. They want a God who will indulge their every desire. And the same is true today. So often people construct a version of God from their own minds. Often it starts with the phrase, I like to think of God as. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 says this, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, 
who alone is immortal, who lives in inapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honour and might forever and ever. This is not the God who we like to think of. The God of Israel, the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, is a God who is holy, who is beyond us, who is not just a construct of our minds, and to worship him, well, it's not easy. It requires obedience. It requires actually that we give up often our wills and the impulses of our hearts. It requires trust and submission. It requires deferred gratification. And who wants that? Who wants that in our modern world? And if it means that we have to rework the Bible to make it mean what we want it to mean, then so be it. And so we make idols. So firstly, this is, firstly, that's why we make idols. Secondly, I want to look at what do idols do to us? What's the effect of them? We make idols because we're impatient. We want a tangible version of God and we want to indulge ourselves But what do idols actually do to us? What's wrong with creating the kind of God that you want God to be if, well, if that makes you happy? Well, firstly, idols demand a sacrifice. They need something of us. They need to be appeased. Um, And this is the case that we see there in Exodus chapter 32, verses 5 and 6, with the gold. They need to be worshipped. They demand something from us. And so if we are to think of the idols that might be in our lives, we want to think of these kinds of questions. What am I worshipping? In fact, what do I sacrifice for? What is the highest good in my life that I'm prepared to give everything for? Because worshipping the true and living God requires sacrifice. That's why the um, key image in baptism is is this sense of cleansing, but it's this sense of death. It's dying to the old person the person who's controlled by sin and in those waters of baptism, a new person and a new life comes through those waters because we're doing away with an old self. We're doing away with those impulses and those unholy desires. Idols take, but the living God gives. An idol takes everything but gives nothing. Secondly, idols don't just demand a sacrifice. They, probably most importantly, corrupt the worshipper. Have a look there in verse 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. 
What's the effect of the worship of the idol upon God's people? Well, fundamentally, it's there in verse 7, it's that they become corrupt. And this is, a, this is actually a significant theme in the Bible. It's not as though idolatry is just the wrong thing to do. It's that idolatry is an act and a mindset and a heart orientation that shapes you, that moulds you, that forms you. In the Bible, it's a theme that you become what you worship. The Bible says that you morph into the likeness of whatever you are worshipping. Hear these words from Psalm 115. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. See what the psalmist is saying? He's saying these idols which people bow before, these mute idols, these lifeless idols, these inanimate idols, they don't have, you know, just because they're inanimate, just because they're mute, does not mean that they don't have an effect upon you. Those who make them will be like them, Psalmist says in verse 8, Psalm 115. If you worship wealth, you will become lifeless. If people pursue fame, then they often become shallow. If you worship sex and relationships often become transactional and others become simply a commodity. And these idols demand more and more and give less and less. We make the idols, but then those idols, inanimate as they are, mute as they are, They control us. And so we see in Exodus chapter 32 that this this situation ends with God's righteous judgment. Moses goes back up to Mount Sinai to intercede for the people. And further on from our reading, he says there in Exodus chapter 32 verse 30, perhaps... I will be able to atone for your sin. Literally, he's saying, perhaps I'll be able to cover for this travesty that's occurred. And the judgment of the 3,000 was only the beginning. It was a limited judgment. But what about those other than the 3,000, those who have broken God's covenant? Well, their hope was in the mediator who climbs this mountain to make atonement. Moses appeals to God. He appeals to God on that mountain there in verse 31 and he says what's happened is a grave sin. And he says there in verse 32, but if not, please erase me from the book you have written. Moses offers his own life 
for the sake of Israel. And because of God's graciousness, because of his kindness, their idolatry did not result in their total destruction. And this whole chapter builds up to this kind of climactic moment in which this mediator, Moses, wants to give his life for the people. But he's not allowed to. It doesn't work that way there in Exodus chapter 32 because Moses could not die for the people because he himself was a sinner. And this whole chapter has this climax that's really unresolved. And in being unresolved, it points us to the ultimate mediator. It's a reminder this morning that we, people, who make for ourselves idols in our own heart, we need a perfect substitute. And in the gospel of the Lord Jesus, we have one. We have the one who would come from this very people. We have the one who would ascend the cross and bear the punishment that we, idolaters, deserve. He took the punishment in our place in order for our sins to be covered. And Jesus would say, take my life that they may live. He would say in John chapter 10, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And because of Christ, our names can be written in the book of life. And I want to really just end with this short reflection on what this passage teaches us about freedom. In this failure of God's people, we learn something quite stunning about the nature of freedom. Often in our modern world, we have this idea of freedom, but in our minds, it's not quite what we think it is. Because to be free in our kind of contemporary Western world is to be free from external powers. To be free in our modern world is to be free from people telling you what to do, the constraints that are around you, hemming you in. And you need to be liberated to choose what you want, to, be cho- to choose your own path in life. But when we think of freedom in that limited way, we fail to see that there are not just external forces that constrain us, but there are internal forces that capture us, that hold us, that hem us in. Our hearts and the sin that is in within them. See, In Exodus chapter 32, we're reminded that God's people have been freed. They've been freed from the slavery of the Egyptians, but they have not, in Exodus chapter 32, been freed from the slavery of their own hearts. To be free, to be properly free, we need to be free externally and internally. We need to be free from the devil and from the flesh from death and from sin, from the Egyptian slave master and from golden calves. Jesus was debating in John chapter 8 with the Judeans and they're quite proud as they come to him. They say, look, we're not slaves, we're sons of Abraham. Jesus doesn't agree with them. He replies 
in John chapter 8, verse 34. Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And he says in verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you, you will be free indeed. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying you don't have to be wearing shackles to be a slave. That all human people are enslaved to their own sinful desires, to the power of darkness that holds our hearts. And Jesus says he is here to set us free. And he's here to set us free by doing what Moses wanted to do, but only better. Moses prays for the people to be forgiven. And he says that he will be a substitute for his people and that he can be blotted out instead of them. But God says no. But Jesus is the one who would be sacrificed because he was without blemish. And he is interceding on our behalf with prayers that will not end. And he was blotted out of the book so that we might be written in. We build the calves. We enslave ourselves. And yet, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus, in his death and in his resurrection, and in the anointing of the spirit that's given to us all, we have been set free. And if the Son sets us free, we will be free indeed. Amen. Please stand as we sing.